This is MR Mates, a podcast where we sit down with guests of different backgrounds and expertise to analyze and hopefully understand current issues. I'm your host, Matt Laveau, sitting down today with Kenneth T. McLeish, Associate Professor of Medicine, Health, Society, and Anthropology at Vanderbilt University. He has written one book called Making War at Fort Hood and is currently working on a new book entitled Veteran Disorder on Care and Ex-Military Life in a Veteran Treatment Court. It focuses on the experiences of veterans in the criminal justice system and how veterans are seen as sources of social disorder. Today, we are here to talk about an article he co-wrote with Jonathan M. Metzl titled Mental Illness, Mass Shootings, and the Politics of American Firearms. This podcast is also in the memory of those who lost their lives in the March 22nd mass shootings that occurred in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, in the wake of what happened in Boulder, your research addresses four central assumptions that get discussed in the aftermath of mass shootings, and I would like us to go through each one of them and explain their context. The first one of these is that mental illness causes gun violence. The uh, and I, here I don't want to uh, uh, to sort of you know over anticipate some of the questions that uh, I know you've got lined up, uh, but this is. Uh, something that we're really familiar with in American society, but also in other places around the world where uh, easy access to weapons mean that uh, gun violence happens more frequently, um, that, uh, that there's, there's frequently a direct appeal to mental illness as an explanation for events that seemingly have no other explanation. Uh, one of the things that we seek to show is that this uh, explanation is not only sort of incorrect from a clinical and public health perspective, uh, but also that it is uh, highly stigmatizing and ableist in terms of how our society thinks about uh, people with mental illness. The second assumption is that psychiatric diagnosis predicts gun crime. Yes. And this likewise is something that we frequently uh, hear in the hear about in the wake of mass shootings, uh, especially in the US, there's kind of a fixation on what sorts of diagnostic labels may have been attached to uh, a person who committed a mass shooting and uh, and what sorts of treatment or intervention they were undergoing with the implication, of course, being that it should somehow be the job of psychiatry or mental health care to identify people who are at risk of uh, committing acts like this. As we show in our research and as a lot of other researchers working in this field have also demonstrated, there is no psychiatric diagnosis that, uh, that can predict that someone will uh, commit a mass shooting. There is no psychiatric diagnosis for which uh, mass gun violence against others is an identifying symptom. Um, and precisely because the, uh, the frequency of mass shootings, uh, while, the, while the frequency of uh, gun injury and uh, gun-related deaths in the United States is remarkably high, uh, the frequency of mass shootings is sufficiently uncommon that it's not something that it's possible to predict at the individual level, let alone through the lens of psychiatry, which is not a discipline or a, a, a field of care that is equipped to do this. And the third one being that shootings represent the deranged acts of mentally ill loners. Yes. And this likewise is a, is a really powerful cultural narrative that our society has sort of woven around uh, the act of, uh, of mass gun violence. Again, when we look at 
the statistics for gun-related injury and death in the United States, we find that most of those deaths and injuries happen within uh, the social networks of people who already know one another. And that the, uh, the idea of sort of seizing upon this rather terrifying figure of the mentally ill loner as the, the, the most important point of intervention in addressing gun violence and gun crime sort of undermines our ability to see the broader ways that, uh, that gun violence harms society. And the fourth and final one being that gun control won't prevent another mass shooting. Yes, exactly. And of course, uh, in the wake of these really terrible events, uh, so recently now in uh, Colorado, like you just mentioned, as well as in Atlanta, uh, there is, we frequently hear um, this particular claim reiterated uh, and sometimes even uh, doubling down on efforts to ease access to guns. But one of the things that existing research on gun-related injuries and deaths in the United States tells us is that access to firearms is the single biggest predictor of the frequency of gun-related deaths. And this is something that because gun regulations vary so considerably by state in the United States, it is actually relatively easy to demonstrate a a strong correlative relationship between places with uh, with more restrictive gun regulations uh, and lower rates of of, of gun violence and uh, a death by firearm. So I want to go more in depth within these these four categories. So within the current political arena, why is it that politicians, policymakers, and journalists believe that mental health practitioners can make big decisions about gun ownership? So I should make clear that my answer to this question is something that comes from my perspective as a cultural anthropologist and uh, an anthropologist of medicine and mental health uh, in the United States. Um, That is to say, I'm not a clinician uh, and I'm not a mental health practitioner. I'm someone who studies uh, what we might call the social life of mental illness and our collective societal knowledge about it, both in lay everyday public form and in expert form. And in American society, like a lot of other places around the world, uh, we look to medicine and we look to psychiatry and the field of mental health in particular as uh, as a, a source of expertise for explaining events that would otherwise seem inconceivable or unthinkable. And this is something that uh, Jonathan Metzl and I write about in uh, the article that you mentioned a moment ago. It's easy to understand why uh, folks would want to reach for this narrative of uh, mental illness to explain uh, actions that seem utterly unthinkable, really horrific mass murder and and mass death carried out by firearm um, as something that Uh, we as a society just sort of can't wrap our heads around even as we witness it happening uh, with with somewhat regular frequency. Um, And that as the sort of field uh, field of expertise in our uh, society that explains and and, uh, uh, intervenes on and labels the difference between what constitutes normal and abnormal behavior, uh, it makes sense that we would look to, to psychiatry and to mental health practitioners Uh, to intervene in these areas. Uh, I think a second reason that we look to these areas too is because these are places that 
offer us uh, essentially individualistic explanations for acts like this. Uh, they, um, they make it possible to imagine that acts like this could only happen because of the pathology or, or dysfunction of, of the sort of rare or isolated individual. And uh, in a society like the US where uh, looking to structural explanations that go beyond the individual uh, is something that uh, that is a little a little more challenging to encourage folks to engage with um, mm -hmm. in the face of our, our kind of uh, our, our cultural preference for an individual focus. Um, it is likewise comforting, to, uh, uh, I think, for us as a society to look to psychiatry and mental health as the uh, the sort of explanation uh, for these kinds of events. And do you think it's important to perhaps you know? Uh, include anthropology and sociology within these larger structural issues, as you say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is, it's, there are a lot of different forms of knowledge that are really important to consider here. Uh, and anthropology and sociology in particular, I think, have a really useful role to play in being able to say, these are events that happen according to it, that as unthinkable as they might seem, these are events that happen to happen according to essentially a now familiar uh, cultural script that has highlighted this form of mass violence carried out with firearms as a, a legible, culturally intelligible way for uh, specifically for white men to exercise and express a sense of aggrievedness or alienation. Um, and, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to look very far to find evidence of this. It's, it's frequently there in the words and testimony of the, um, of the perpetrators uh, themselves when it comes to these acts. And fields like anthropology and sociology can tell us how it is that uh, categories like race and gender and ideas about violence as a form of social expression are things that we can actually understand as culturally meaningful, even if they are also incredibly horrific and, uh, and forms that we would want to, uh, to intervene on to try to uh, control, stop, or limit. And you just mentioned that, you know, there is a this notion that, you know, mass shooters tend to be white males, but it was not even 50, 60 years ago where it was seen that black males were, you know, seen as, as mass shooters, you know, in relation to the Black Panthers and, and other such groups, correct? Yes, that's correct. So uh, I've, I think, thankfully, for the state of our collective societal debate uh, about these issues um, in the present moment, uh, a lot of this history is a little better understood now than it was even just a few years ago. But I think still a lot of folks aren't necessarily aware that the origins of contemporary federal level gun control in the United States basically date back to, uh, just as you said, um, anxiety among uh, white elites about increasing use of firearms by uh, the Black Nationalist Black Panther Party in the 1960s. And that this uh, uh, history and lineage is important to understand when we move into the present day, where it is frequently either implicitly or explicitly this sense that uh, access to firearms by white men is the thing that, uh, that is kind of taken as a cultural given and the thing that must be uh, uh, protected as a 
uh, a societal good through laws and regulations that ease access to firearms. Again, we don't have to look very far to find examples of this in many ways that um, that access to guns by non-white folks is frequently treated in, in our public discourse as problematic and something that calls out for regulation and indeed that justifies lethal violence on the part of police and other law enforcement. And we can also look to recent campaigns by the National Rifle Association, uh, the NRA, which of course is the, the firearms industry uh, lobbying group in the United States. This marketing that explicitly plays into racialized fears of crime and casts uh, social justice movements like Black Lives Matter as sources of dangerous uh, political unrest against which citizens are invited to, uh, to arm themselves. And something I would want to emphasize here is that this, this isn't necessarily about the sort of relative worthiness of individuals or specific communities in terms of their access to guns, but uh, rather uh, a way that we can bring into consideration the kinds of uh, social relations, exactly as, you, as your question sort of prompted, that shape our perceptions of guns and whose access to guns uh, ought to be protected and whose access to guns constitutes a danger to society. So within your article, you know, you point out other um, issues, uh, other uh, structural issues that need to be addressed when talking about gun violence within America. Can you talk a little bit about those certain issues? Yes, absolutely. So again, one of the things that uh, casting this uh, this uh, purported strong association between mental illness and gun violence um, into question is that it enables us to look at different uh, predictive factors that we would also uh, want to take account of, or perhaps, or, or rather take account of um, instead. Uh, and uh, in the, uh, the article, we uh, cite research that um, documents that the, uh, the factors that predict uh, gun violence are in many ways much more straightforward and much more widespread, and in some ways relatively unsurprising, uh, but also kind of much less exotic than association with um, severe mental illness. Uh, like we uh, document in the, the article, the factors that tend to be most strongly associated with, uh, uh, with gun violence are one, access to uh, firearms in the first place, uh, two, use of alcohol, uh, three, um, male gender, and uh, four, connections within social networks. Um, so one of the things that this tells us and that I think is especially important for us to understand, uh, again, as I think about it from my perspective as a cultural anthropologist, is that many of the factors that uh, predict people's vulnerability to, uh, to gun violence are things that are directly embedded in normal everyday life. It's um, regular activities that people uh, engage in all the time, like drinking or, uh, or drug use. It's uh, cultural attitudes that are associated with, uh, with gender and specifically with masculinity. It's uh, uh, interactions that happen within networks of people who already know each other among acquaintances or neighbors um, or people who, or coworkers or people who are already familiar to one another. And uh, for finally, of course, it depends so very strongly 
on access to weapons in the first place, uh, that access to weapons is one of the things, um, you know, rather than outside force of something called mental illness uh, being directly responsible for these kinds of violence, um, th these are kinds of violence that can only happen through, the, through access to and availability of firearms. And in your article, you talk about how there is a relation between mental illness and uh, random mass shootings being statistically uh, aberrations. Can you talk more about that? Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you asked this because I think it's, a, it's an important thing to sort of um, carefully walk through as we, as we think about these associations. So first, to begin with, it is absolutely the case that people with diagnosed severe mental illnesses are overrepresented among the perpetrators of high-profile mass shootings. That is to say, there's a significant proportion of folks who have been diagnosed with severe mental illness among the, uh, the perpetrators of uh, high-profile mass shootings that have received a lot of attention. That statistical relationship uh, or proportional relationship does not work in the opposite direction, uh, simply because the frequency of high-profile mass shootings is incredibly, incredibly small, uh, especially in relative proportion to the population of folks in the United States with diagnosed mental illness. Uh, that indeed, in the context of that broader population of folks with diagnosed mental illness, the frequency of, of large-scale high-profile mass shootings is so vanishingly small as to be uh, statistically impossible to draw generalizations about. Um, on the other hand, we do know that uh, mental illness tends to be dramatically exaggerated in our media coverage of violent crime and violent events um, in general. Uh, there was a 2016 study in health affairs, which uh, found that, and I, uh, I would have to go back and look at the study's methodology to tell you exactly uh, how they, uh, they arrived at these precise figures, um, that found that a, a very small percentage of inter interpersonal violence could be directly attributable to uh, mental illness. In this particular study, they found 4% uh, of instances of interpersonal violence could be attributable to mental illness. But they found that 40%, uh, 10 times as much in terms of proportion, 40% of media stories about interpersonal violence specifically connected it to um, or uh, associated it with mental illness. And finally, we also know that, uh, again, well, uh, uh, in the, the broader landscape of gun crime, uh, less than 5% of all gun crime is committed by people with mental illnesses. Uh, and in fact, people with mental illnesses and especially people with severe mental illnesses are far more likely to be the victims of violence, including victims of gun violence, than they are uh, to be uh, perpetrators of, uh, of mass violence with a firearm. Why is it that when we see the news and we see these mass shootings, why is it that when we see these mass shooters, it tends to be that they have mental health issues? Is there not a way to you know, because because it's so individual, as you you know, these these cases, is it is it impossible to to fix uh, this problem? Well, I think one way of looking at it is again to to go back to that earlier question about sort of what are the what are the factors that uh, looking at the population level most strongly predict uh, uh, 
uh, most strongly predict gun crime and gun violence. And the one of the factors that it is easiest to intervene on at the societal level is uh, the availability of firearms. Um, and uh, in the, you know, in the United States, we are a, a sort of uniquely abundantly armed society uh, and also a society where many, many legal measures exist uh, to, uh, to actually uh, make it difficult to further regulate or control firearms. Um, and so that means there are uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, firearms that just that uh, uh, circulate uh, freely and in relatively unregulated ways um, throughout American society. This is one of the places in the world where it is um, easiest for, uh, for people to, to access weapons. And so I would say that one way of answering your question is to essentially uh, sort of flip it around um, and uh, uh, and to look to firearms as the place where it is important to uh, uh, to intervene because they represent um, uh, one of the strongest predictive factors for gun violence. Through legislation, you know, passed in Congress, has it actually affected how, has it actually made a difference in, in the severity of, of mass shootings in America? Uh, gun control measures have uh, uh, directly observable uh, effects on the frequency of gun violence and gun-related deaths. Um, because of the way that guns circulate in the United States, um, it is, it's easy to identify many exceptions to these rules. It's, it's uh, easy enough to point to, for instance, um, uh, big cities in states with relatively restrictive uh, uh, gun ownership and gun sales uh, regulations that still have high levels of gun crime, simply because uh, not every state has those same rules and it's easy for guns to travel across state lines. Um, however, it is also possible to observe um, that uh, rates of gun-related death uh, at the population level are significantly impacted by gun safety and gun control um, regulation at the state level. Uh, so that states that have um, more extensive or uh, more restrictive rules around uh, gun ownership, gun sales, and gun safety uh, also tend to have uh, significantly lower rates of gun-related injury and death. And Professor, final question. In light of the recent events in Boulder and Atlanta, do you think that there is a possibility that the new Biden administration will try to solve gun violence in America within the racial, gender, and social context? And what can psychiatry and anthropology, sociology do in helping uh, solve this greater cultural problem? That's a great question. And I don't know enough about sort of what's on the Biden administration's docket in terms of gun violence and, and gun reform, uh, though we certainly have seen uh, a kind of uh, more expansive social justice focus in some of the um, uh, the first, uh, these first several sort of signature um, executive measures that have come out of the administration. At the same time, it's also important to note that state legislatures around the country uh, in, in some states uh, have been 
um, systematically passing measures that that ease or further de-restrict access to firearms. Um, in my home state of Tennessee, for instance, the state legislature just passed a, a law approving permitless carry of firearms, uh, essentially making it legal for anybody who is uh, 21 and older in the state of Tennessee to carry a firearm uh, without uh, any sort of uh, training or official permitting process. And it's worth pointing out that this legislation was opposed not only uh, by uh, gun safety and gun control advocates, uh, but was also strongly opposed by law enforcement who were concerned about the uh, dangerous to public safety and the difficulty in keeping track of guns used to commit crimes that will be occasioned by this legislative change. To answer the second part of your question in terms of what these different fields can do, mm -hmm. um, one possibility that uh, folks might look to for action and further development in the future would be questions around federally funded gun research. Um, because gun control has been uh, so sort of heavily politicized as uh, an issue, uh, despite broad support uh, across the American public uh, for relatively straightforward gun safety measures uh, like uh, background checks and uh, waiting periods that, um, that most Americans are in favor of. But because this issue has been so, uh, so politicized, by uh, some political leadership and by lobbying organizations like the NRA, uh, it is actually uh, very, very difficult to use any kind of federal research funding to investigate the effects and, and possible policy changes around gun violence and gun safety. Um, so one thing that uh, folks might look to or, uh, or think about in terms of where the new administration is headed uh, is the extent to which researchers will have access to, to federal funds uh, to answer some of these important, these important questions that are important to, you know, to medicine, to public health, uh, and to public safety more generally, and uh, whether the federal government will be able to, to intervene by helping sort of further enrich the kinds of knowledge that we have available to us to think about these things. Professor McLeish, it was a great pleasure having you. Thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful to get to talk to you. Likewise. So that's it for this edition of MRR Meets. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Miguel National Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues and international affairs.